3: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing great. All right. You ready to rock and roll?
1: I am so ready.
3: We we're going to shift up the show a little bit today, and you'll find out more about that in just a second. But before we get started, okay. I was thinking about something uh, at the gym this morning I was as I was trying to get yoked or swole, as the kids are saying. You're always
1: yoked and swole.
3: I did find out that I'm probably the only 48 year old guy who dances constantly at the gym. There's another lady who she's probably and I don't want to see her age, but in her mid 50s, yeah. and this lady is rocking the dance moves like she's got finger guns. She's doing air lassos and just having a great time. And I was <laughs> wow. like, and I was like, wow, that seems kind of weird. And then I found myself dancing in the mirror, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, I kind of like this. You know, I could see you doing that. Yeah. And, yeah, and So yeah. I was thinking about this, and what it thought what got me thinking was an opinion. Now I've got a definition of opinion. Okay. A viewer judgment formed about something not necessarily based on fact or knowledge. Now, okay. when you enter the recovery world or the world of addiction, there's a lot of opinions. And, you know, sometimes – And what well, I'm going to say sometimes. Most of the time, people throw their opinions like they're facts. Yeah, or,
1: that's – okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yep.
3: And that's that, that what it is. But you want to go, no, this is just your opinion of what it is. Yeah. And the great thing about an opinion – is it can be changed? It's not easily changed.
1: Well, that depends on how defensive a person is. But you're right. Opinions can be swayed by facts or just other people's opinions.
3: Like, and, and when I was looking through uh, Facebook and I was scrolling through the Project Recovery Facebook page, uh, you know, there's a lot of opinions that are are presented to us as comments, but almost in the form of a fact. And until yes. you walk, oh, in, social
1: media is full of that. Yeah.
3: Until you walk in someone's shoes. You know I I think you almost should keep your opinion to yourself just for a little bit until you find out the whole story because when I know when I was in active addiction um there was a lot of people talking about me
4: mhm yeah.
3: uh you know of you know
1: on this on social media you you uh you were a popular topic I was a hot button yeah
3: and people would, would would say things and without knowing the whole story. Now it's not possible for everybody to know everybody's full story, but that doesn't stop people from throwing their opinions. And opinions are very detrimental when it comes to addiction and recovery. Right. And, and it's from loved ones, it's from addicts themselves, and even so much as the opinion you have of yourself. Mm -hmm. Because not based in much truth or knowledge. It's just an opinion. So I wanted to get your take on opinions because you're a psychologist and a lot of people come in here and they talk to you and about their lives, their stories and all that stuff. And how much does an opinion play into certain things?
1: Into their life story? Sure. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, uh, it kind of goes back to that saying, I like to say, perception determines reality. Like... Your opinion is just a perception of something. It's what you believe. It's what you think. It doesn't, like the definition said, it doesn't have to be based in fact. And so a lot of people... Um See the world just through their own opinions. And so they think they're right mm-hmm. about things all the time. And that can be annoying to others, but it can actually be detrimental to the person. You know, if the person has their opinions about uh, addiction recovery or why a person uh, becomes an addict or mental health issues, then they, we often, you know, see them, they sort of uh, get stuck in those opinions and they can't see beyond their prejudices. How many times sense.
3: have we had people in here on the podcast? who had battled addiction multiple times, only to come up a little bit short. And so they finally sat down and they looked in the mirror and goes, well, this is what it's going to be. And so now I'm just going to be the best addict I could ever be <laughs> yeah. because yeah. that was their opinion and they couldn't have been changed. And it wasn't, it wasn't truth. It wasn't fact because right. we know recovery is possible. Yeah. But to them, it was the opinion of themselves that this, this is not going to work for them. So this is what I'm going to do. And well, opinions are often based Are based or influenced
1: by a person's emotional state, as opposed to their cognitive or logical state, Mm -hmm. and that's hard to make that shift. If you, especially if you spent most of your life, you be honest with yourself. Don't nobody answer. We've got a few people here in the studio. Don't answer, but just think. When I make decisions, how often is that based on my emotion about something versus the logic or the data about something? Seventy-five percent of the time. Yeah, you're an emotional thinker, right? I Uh, really am. I yeah, Yeah, it's high. Now, you're an intuitive person, Mm -hmm. and I think you're an optimistic person. And so a lot of times that works out for you, but a lot of times it's gotten you in some trouble, right? Uh And so we have people in here a lot of times where they're like, you could just see they were making emotional decisions based on opinions time after time after time. And oftentimes it took... Opening up their mind to another person's opinion, what might be, which might be based more on facts and data, like listening to somebody who has something to offer them before that changed their opinions and therefore what they ended up doing. But up until that point, up until we open up our mind to other people's opinions, which might be less based on emotion, we can make some pretty pretty big mistakes.
3: So think about this. you got emotional decisions and logical decisions. Right. And now you're throwing in uh, substances or alcohol, which will change your emotional state and your logical state. Right. And you're now trying to make decisions with that in the mix. I mean, you can see where it becomes this whirlwind <laughs> yeah. of just just chaos. Yeah, it's to- chaos is probably the right word. Yeah, you know. And so that's what I I, I just want to caution people, you know, with their opinions, because a lot of people want to hear their opinions coming out of your mouth. Oh, for sure. Well,
1: let me give you a weird example. Like this I is love them. this is this is funny because this morning I was on a a, a big meeting w- with lots of people involved uh, at this big meeting. I, I'm not going to throw the meeting under the bus, but it's a University of Utah Healthcare meeting. Lots of people in there, and uh, some of the doctors that were talking uh, were saying we wanted to start doing this particular treatment, and it's going to be great. And they were explaining why, and da, da da da. And then another doctor came on the call and said. Basically, that's your opinion. There's no data to back that up. We shouldn't be doing that, you know. And it turned into this huge eruption. And in the end, we had to admit that there just wasn't data to uh, back up starting this new treatment. We needed more. We need data, healthcare data, because it's people's health. And it's also their money and time to come in for these treatments. But it was interesting that even in a, a bunch of well-educated people, emotion and opinions sometimes take over the logical brain for at least a time. Luckily, they kind of got outvoted. But um, until some data can back up their opinion, but, but it happens at all all areas of our lives, even in a very important healthcare
3: meeting. But we can say that data is uh, there for those in recovery, that it is possible. It is. Oh, in general. And I will say this.
1: So to go to the other side a little bit, not everything has to be data-driven. No. Not everything. There are some things, and you and I have talked about, like, there are a lot of different ways of sober mountain, And if for some reason, doing this other thing like, works for you. you know, the prayer circles or something, where there may be not be data, but there are a lot of people who feel like that really works for me, I think there definitely is the connection validity in that. However, I will say that if you want to just look at, is recovery possible, not just sobriety, and we'll draw that distinction. Sobriety is just not using. Okay. And we know that that's not always a great place for a person or their family. Mm -mm. But being in a life of recovery, being a productive, healthy, happy uh, person is, is, does recovery work? The answer is yes, it does. And there's plenty of data that shows that there are a lot of different options, everything from 12 step to chemical interventions to lots of things that can really improve a person's possibility or probability of being a person in recovery. So yeah, there's
3: plenty of data to show that it works. I remember when I was in active addiction and this was the summer of right before I went into uh, pinnacle recovery and uh, my dad was talking to me on the golf course and I was drinking as I usually do. And I was, I was drunk, you know, and my dad was talking about it being a problem and all this other stuff. And I remember telling my dad, I go, you know, a lot of people just think I'm this drunk. And my dad goes, yeah. And he goes, it's really simple. You've got two things to do. And I go, okay, I'm, I'm all ears. What, what do I do? He goes, you can either prove them wrong or you can prove them right. And right now you're proving them right. Hmm. You have a choice and you've got to figure that out. And it took an accident and me going into recovery and a lot of soul searching and figuring out who I am. But I did change a lot of people's opinions. Now, there's still people out there who have opinions that I'm still this this drunk and this this this. This heathen, and that's okay because that's their opinion, and they can have it, but it doesn't make it true because if they don't really know me, if they knew me, they would know how serious recovery is to me, how much I love to help, and what a gift recovery has been to me, my family, and I'll be forever, ever grateful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly worked for you and your family and we have the only, uh, I mean, not the only, (laughs) that sounded bad, but one of the main reasons I love doing this show is for that reason. Every week we get to see how it's operating in somebody's life and how wonderful their life is because they took, you know, they jumped in and did recovery and we're going to talk about some rock bottoms today with our guests Mm -hmm. and even though your dad gave you that insightful Conversation, it took a rock bottom experience for you to realize I want to prove them wrong instead of prove them right. So sometimes knowledge isn't enough. Sometimes we have to have some experiential learning.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. And this week we got two guests from Wasatch Recovery, uh, and we're going to start with the rock bottoms and what they're doing. It's Corey and Decker. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL.
4: Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
3: Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Corey Markusic. And uh I nailed that. You nailed that yes, name. I did.
1: I told you to write it down but you just went for we it. We
3: were practicing before the mics went yeah. hot and I was like I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> well, that was it was you could make, you can mess that up in a way we might be you know yeah. make us this uncomfortable. Yeah. KSL, you know right. what I mean? Hey, but even uh you know good things happen to me every once in a while. Yeah, uh, every day. Amen. Since recovery, I am blessed beyond belief. Let's talk to Corey. He's the executive director of Wasatch Recovery uh right up here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we find out all the cool stuff you're doing for there, uh, Corey, we want to start with your rock bottom. But before we hit the rock bottom, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and you know a little bit about your family.
2: Yeah, so I grew up actually just right over here, Bountiful, Utah. Actually, I was born in, in Woods Cross, but then grew up in Bountiful. So up, at
1: Woods Cross High School or Bountiful High Woods School? Woods Cross. I went okay. to Woods Cross High. All right. Because yep. that's the distinction, right? The, the line. Oh, it is. And Bountiful, there one or the other. Is. Yeah. The actually, rivalry
3: is real. So
2: I have I have two kids right now, and I live right on the border of, of that boundary. And I have one kid that will end up at Bountiful and one daughter that will end up at Woods Cross. And okay. Well, not to go too
1: far down this rabbit hole, but I have two grads from w- w- Woods Cross yeah. and then one graduate graduate. Graduated from Bountiful, and the other will too. Okay, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we'll have yeah. two about? and two. You get yeah.
2: it. You yeah. you fill it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> not really. I don't care. <laughs> well, so so part of actually kind of, and we'll kind of get into this, but part of kind of my story was that. So I grew up in Wood's cross and I you know I was about mm, was seventh grade. Seventh grade. So we, my parents came to us and said, "Hey, we're moving. You know, we're going to move to this new beautiful home we're building that was in North Salt Lake." And to me, that kind of shattered me. I was like, what? This was my world. You know, we lived in this little- Seventh grade it's a hard time to yeah, move. Yeah. Well, and, and at Genie the time, high. we had this pretty cool group of friends and we were all pretty close, you know, and, and it it now, now in reality, it was only like three miles away. But to <laughs> right. me, it was a big deal. It was far away. It was on the other side of the freeway. We were moving, you know, to the hill. It was, it, it just felt weird to me. And, and I thought I was going to lose all my friends and everything. And, you know, you get to seventh grade and it's weird anyway. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get there and it's puberty <laughs> yeah, puberty, and, and you're, you think you're an adult and you think you've got it figured out, but you're still just a little teeny kid. I've got a seventh grader right now and I'm watching her go through it and I'm like, Oh man, here we go. Yep. You know? So, so that was kind of where my journey started actually. It's, you know, I was trying to figure out who you are and what you do. And I just kind of had some really, really good friends. We had a close group of friends and as things progressed and we went on we just started kind of getting into smoking pot a little bit drinking you know here and there nothing too bad though you know it was just goofing off dumb kids like oh you know i stole a beer let's all split it between 10 of us you know (laughs) 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 nothing too crazy and then high school got into high school and 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 that kind of progressed you know we had uh, again, a pretty close group of friends. That- but, you
3: know, you say it just it kind of progressed, but that's the natural progression oh, yeah. of yeah. alcohol and weed and substances. Absolutely. It does progress. I mean, when people talk about gateway drugs, now I'm not going to get in the argument about weed or whatever it is being a gateway drug, but all drugs are gateway drugs because uh, sure. this makes you feel good. I wonder what this yep. one does. And then you start sampling and trying, and, and, and then you find the one that is your jam or your DOC, if you will.
2: And, and it makes you feel good. Cool, right? Like yeah. we
3: we thought we were being
2: adults and we we were doing something crazy. I was at the time, you know, my my goal in life at the time was I was going to be a professional snowboarder. That <laughs> that was it, you know. I was going to do it, and and I was, and some of my friends actually even made it, like did some pretty good things with it, and and that was it, you know. So we were kind of in this scene of crazy kids just doing stupid stuff, you know, and that came along with it. We hung out with a lot of older kids in high school and. And so that naturally came on. And, and you know, what was weird at the time with me, I, I never loved it. You know, like it, I would do it here and there, but it never grabbed me. Like I just, all my friends would talk about, you know, oh, it's so fun to be high. And it, it, it actually made me kind of anxious. And so I just never loved it, you know, but I would be with them. It was my friends and we'd go to parties. I'd nurse the same beer, you know, all night and just, be part of it, but not ever, you know, kind of get to that point. I didn't like that feeling. However, you know, I, I got introduced to some pain meds and, and I can never even remember if it was an actual injury or w- whatever happened. Cause I, we were always hurt and all, you know, I don't think they were actually mine in the, in the beginning. It was kind of a friend of a friend. Hey, you know, your knee hurts. Here you go. And and I remember taking a, a couple of those and feeling, feeling good or feel, you know, not like totally high, but I just remember feeling kind of warm, you know, just that kind of, mm, I feel, feel good now working in the field for all these years and doing this. I, I understand what that was and what was going on and what was, well, for me at the time, I didn't realize this. I, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, I, I was dealing with a lot of stuff. If you're a kid, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, had a lot of uneasiness, you know, and that was, it was kind of ma- pain meds, as we know, don't just kill pain, physical pain. You know, they do a lot of emotional pain too. Well, I think it,
1: that's when people come on here and they talk about taking that opioid for the first time and their eyes kind of, yeah. and they're like, oh, that that Euphoric. was my thing, that euphoria. It's much more the psychological and the emotional. Yeah. In fact, I think an argument can be made for opioids that – they're less effective at actual pain management than they are at emotional management.
2: Well, us the, the work in the field. We know that, right? Yeah. We people, people come in and they're like, I've got all this back pain and all this stuff. And they're taking all these pain meds and we get them off of it and their pain goes away, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just how it works. So, yeah, so I, that kind of, that was about junior year and then it it was funny because my friends that would get hurt that I became kind of the person that, Hey, you know, Corey likes pain meds. You know, if (laughs) if you blow your knee out, I don't like these. They make me itch. Give them to Corey. What do we know about Corey? Oh, he likes pain meds. (laughs) We'll give him those for his birthday. He likes pain meds. Well, and I was this kind of self-righteous kind of jerk where I would make fun of my friends. Like, dude, you shouldn't drink. You shouldn't (laughs) smoke pot. That's stupid. You you know, that that, that's not going to make you a good person when I'm taking, you know, pain meds and, you know, it was it was like tic tacs. Yeah, like and and they would do their own thing, and I would do my own thing. Was a little
1: bit of that because of the legal versus illegal nature of those things. It, it was
2: that and and religious. You know, I grew up yeah. very very religious and LDS. Not not like the strict. My parents were very good. You know, they they weren't like you're going to church or else. I mean, they let us choose, and they they let us and did a very good job of teaching us what was right. And so I had that like it was a value of mine that you know that is. They'll choose the right do the right, the right thing right, right? You know? and mm-hmm. but i've justified in my head that hey on that list it doesn't say lore tab <laughs> it does <laughs> right? not and so Drugs and this alcohol. was
3: prescribed by a doctor right, well, right. And
1: that's what i think i think it's not it's definitely part of the lds church culture but i think it's just kind of a general uh, sure. us culture that if it's prescribed by a doctor okay. it seems more legitimate it seems more safe and if you're buying it on the back street somewhere or going to some scrubby house to get it, then there's something taboo about yep. that. So we, we easily, I mean, the addict brain always wants to justify and rationalize, right? And so that's, I, I figured that even at a young age, you were, that's why you were scolding your buddies who Absolutely. were smoking weed and rolling joints in the snow yeah. parking lot, you know, but yeah.
2: And, and I was definitely part of that, but I just, it was funny how I made it okay. I remember even I ended up getting my wisdom teeth out at some time, so I got a prescription of my own, and then I would I kept that bottle for you know probably a year or two, and then I would get other pills and put them in it because that even made it more okay. Right? You know, I actually have a bottle. <laughs> I have a bottle? Yes, I, name name on on it. It. I can show people with
3: my name <laughs> yeah. on it. It's yeah. worn out. The dates yes. and the names yes. are all worn out. <laughs> but, Yeah,
2: yeah, so, yeah. So that it was crazy, you know. And it again as as teenagers and we. There were some of us that kind of got a little bit worse than others, but at the time it was never, never too bad of, of kind of on this scale, you know, and then high school was coming to an end and I actually had a really good friend that had graduated a couple of years before he was a senior when I was a sophomore, he had moved on and, and gone to college and he was home for Memorial Day weekend and I didn't know at the time, you know, we lived in the bubble of Bountiful and we were all just happy and everything's great and we think everything's just hunky-dory. And he had been struggling with, with a lot of stuff, you know, just some depression, a lot of things that none of us even knew. And he ended up taking his life. <sighs> and that was my last week of high school. And, and so we had like our, our our graduation and a funeral on the same day. Oh. And it was it was oh. pretty rough, you know, yeah. and... And I remember at the time, you know, us as, as kids kind of huddled over here, like trying to figure out, you know, what's this world about, right? You know, and, and the, and parents over here worried, you know, about their kids and what's happening and, and, and none of us were really talking, you know, like it was kind of these two different pods and, and again, now working in the field and knowing, you know, I mean, all of us, we need to talk. We got to, had to get that stuff out. And Mm -hmm. a lot of us at the time, just either stuffed it, you know, just kind of, okay, that's, I guess this is life, you know, we got to figure this out. So a lot of us at the time, you know, some of us went on missions, some of us went to college. some of we all, we all kind of fractured at the time. It was the end of school anyway. Right. right? And so everyone went their own at separate ways and kind of, kind of did their own things. And, and some people struggled, you know, some people still are struggling. It, it, it's pretty sad.
3: So where does your rock bottom come into play? Let's so, fast forward how many years. So so let's fast forward about that was that was eighteen. Fast forward to
2: about I'd say five years or so ahead. So what happened is I progressively got, you know, more into pills. I actually stopped like drinking and smoking all that stuff. Like I was like done, you know. I was, that scared me, you know, that that was a weird thing. I didn't do anything for probably a, a year or two. You know, I was I went to school, I was kind of just doing some things, got into college, met a met a really cool girl and and uh, my life was really good, you know. I I was I was pretty busy and doing some good things. Every once in a while I'll pay meds would creep in, but it wasn't like it was before. I you know, I even friends kinda just went a different way, I was working, I got pretty busy. But fast forward some years later, you know, and I it was during this Oxycontin boom, you know, thing everyone was doing Oxycontin. And I had a friend, well, some friends, you know, they, you know, were kind of doing it here and there. And someone said, Hey, you should you know, try this. I know you like pain meds in the, in, you know, back in the day, try this. It's like pain med, but it's super small. You only have to take a little bit of it and you don't have to take <laughs> all these, you know, And I'm like, what the heck, you know, whatever, let's, let's give it a shot. And, and I remember the very next day after that thinking, wow, that was, that was awesome. You know? And up until then I had never bought Pills. I didn't know you could do that. I thought it was just you get it from a doctor. You know, it mm-hmm. was legal, and so that put me on a, a progression for the next couple of years of just I found out where to buy them. I found me the way my mind works is you know if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. You know, so I weasled my way into who was getting them and where they're getting them and what's going on, and and I just didn't want to buy one and two here and there. I wanted to have a bunch, and that's where this kind of got crazy is I found some people that were actually getting it from doctors and they were going in and saying, Hey, you know, I got back pain or whatever it was. And they'd get, you know, these, these scripts that were illegal and, and I didn't know it at the time I, I was pretty naive to what was going on, but I didn't know it at the time, but even the doctor was in on it, you know, and I, I had never gone to the doctor personally, but I would buy it from the people that would go to the doctor.
1: And that was a big thing back then. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, that's, we have different type of oversight now for yep. for all of that, but you're absolutely right. Some of these, you know, physicians and I use that term lightly because a physician is supposed to take care of people. Um, you know, they became drug dealers, yep. and um, you know they knew for sure what they were doing was wrong. But other people, I think, were a little bit in the dark because you're like, well, I have a prescription, yeah. So I, I think that it, as it filtered down to non medical people. Um, you know, I'm not giving anybody a full pass, but I think a lot of people were like, well, we got the prescription. How, how illegal could this be? Well, it was very
2: illegal. And, and that's what happened is all of a sudden. So, so I had got married. I was almost done with college. I was up at the university of Utah. I was studying finance. I had about uh, like a semester left semester. And then the summer left. And I was pretty deep into it. I mean, I was using every day. I was bad. I was, I tried several times to stop I even told my parents, told my wife, like they knew what was going on and, but we didn't know what to do. I just thought it was, I just got to stop, you know? And, and it was weird because I had isolated myself from, from other people. I wasn't like going with friends and it wasn't this huge party thing. It was me internally. And again, it was more of the emotional stuff, right? I mean, I was, I mean, that creates more anxiety. So I was just a mess, right? And, and I had gone to a doctor. Someone said, hey, you should go to a doctor. They, they've got this new thing called Suboxone that can help you out. So I go to this doctor and I start going to him for a month. And, of course, that doesn't work. You know, I'm just, I'm just a mess. And one day I, I go to him and it's early in the morning. I had a day off of work. I was working at Fidelity Investments and I had a day off of work. You know,
1: managing lots of millions of dollars well it was while high I, as a kite. I, I, well yeah. yeah
2: it was what's funny i look back on it now and i had more responsibility than i should have you know but <laughs> well, I, I don't mean to, i don't mean to call
1: you out but like that yeah
2: that's what happens like
1: you know like we we have these jobs where we're responsible for other people in some way in this case it's money and you know when a person's in their addiction they, they they're not capable of doing a good job. But anyway, go ahead. So you go in, it's early morning. You go into the
2: doctor, you got day off and he says, he gives me my script. I go no. home and I get a knock on the door. It's like seven 30 in the morning. And I'm like, who the heck's knocking on my door? So Mormons. In the yeah. Right. <laughs> Missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> Missionaries or cops. One or yeah. the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way. Don't answer it. <laughs> so, so I walk to the side and I walk over and there had some drapes and I push them over <laughs> to the side. And there's these two guys down there, not missionaries. They did not have tags on, but they were wearing. Suits. But they nope, they were in plain clothes. Uh huh. But I had this, and I had up to that point, I had, of course I'm in active addiction, so I'm doing dumb things. You know, there could be a million things that I could be in trouble for, but I didn't know what. Right? Sure. I just knew. Uh oh, that's not good. Something's not good. And I had this overwhelming kind of just, I'm in trouble. You know, and I need help. And And I literally fell to my knees and just said, I don't know what's going on. I need some help. I'm in trouble. You know, like, and I stood up, opened the door. They said, Hey, are you Corey Marks? Yep. I am. Put your hands behind your back, blah, blah, blah. You're under arrest. And I'm like, I've never been in trouble in my life, you know? And, and, and they proceed to arrest me. And next thing I know, I'm driving down this road in the back of a, a car and they're asking me all these questions about, you know, you know, about pills. And, and as they're asking me, I'm realizing they know me, you know, <laughs> they they know me. They know where I was yesterday. And I'm going, so I just shut up. You know, I'm just like, mm, I don't know what's going on. I'm terrified. Take me to jail. I, you know, I call my my parents. My By the way, my wife was home at the time and that was not a good situation either. I can't a, imagine. That's another story. I had been lying to her and telling her everything's fine. Clearly it wasn't, you know? And so, so yeah, they, they take me to jail. I call my dad and he ends up bailing me out. He's out of town though. they my parents are out of town. And they said, get to my house. We'll be there by tonight. So I get there back to their home. I'm home alone. You know, everything is falling apart around me. And I, and I'm, I'm a mess, you know, like I don't even know what's going on. I'm having all these weird thoughts and that's over and I need some help. And, and they come in, they actually probably came in at a good time because I, I was on that mode of I'm going out, you know, this is a done, I got to figure something out. I don't know what it was. Suicidal.
3: Suicidal or back to get more drugs,
2: back to get more drugs. Okay. But also probably along that line, you know, like I, I didn't really know again at that time what I was doing. I was just, I got to get away, you know, and luckily they showed up. So i will give you the quick version. Now of all this, what happened is I was involved with us buying some, some pills of all these these guys that were going to doctors. There was over 200 people involved. It got pretty deep. I actually have a graphic of, of this kind of chain of where it all went down and, where I'm at on the chart, you know, I'm clear over here, but had doctors and the pyramid of the pyramid of, uh, yes. drug uh, it, it, dealing. It, and it was crazy. Yeah. It started with a doctor and a pharmacist as the top. It was, yeah, it was. Yeah, madness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the crazy part in all this story is I had a brother-in-law that worked for the state at the time in the insurance fraud division. And he, I knew he had worked in, in law enforcement and stuff. Didn't really know what he'd, did to the details of course because i wanted to stay away because i was not doing good things anyway right well come to find out he was like one of the lead people on this case and what had happened is <laughs> at one random time i he was they were with somebody doing a controlled buy or whatever and i walk up and buy from this guy and my brother-in-law is the one watching right no oh, and it. and this was months before any of this happened right so so I'm going to family parties, I'm doing all this stuff, and he knows. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he knows. And he knows. Which. One more reason
1: not to like a brother in Oh, yeah.
2: And, and I was a piece <laughs> of crap, you know? I, I wasn't a good guy anyway. And so it was a, I mean, it gave him more fuel than I liked me, you know? And and I was I was young, I was a punk, I was dumb, you know? and And so... I mean, that that just, you know, there's a personal tie. So yeah. as, as I'm going to court and as I'm going through all this stuff, it just kept getting worse. I mean, more charges, more things. It was it was horrible. Now, when all this happened, uh, clearly I needed to do something. I needed to get some help, right? I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what treatment was. I didn't know what counseling was. I just knew I had a, a problem and everyone hated me and, and – You know, I was like the poor me victim. Everyone hates me. I just, You know, really, I got myself into this. I got to figure this out. So luckily, I had insurance at the time. And we had this really cool EAP thing at Fidelity. And they lined me up with this really cool place called Dayspring that, you know, that was up at LDS. It was actually out in Taylorsville at the time. Now it's up at the hospital. But it was a day treatment program. And I went there and I loved it. Like all of a sudden I had I was talking about things. I was doing things and, and I remember thinking, Is this for real? Like, you know, like I, I love this stuff. And I remember thinking at night, going, What it took me to get to this point, I could just talk to people? Like I could work all this <laughs> stuff out, you know? And and I, I loved it so much. I was eating it up. I was there about a week and a half. And then I saw some people coming in for IOP. I didn't know what that was. And I'm like, What do those guys do? Why are they here at night? And they said, Oh, it's IOP, they come in the evening. I'm like, can I do that? They're like, well, yeah, you do it
4: after. after. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I'm like, well, I have nothing to do. I've been kicked out of my home. I live in my mom's basement right now. I, I got a leave of absence from work, which, which was cool. So I was in a, a spot and they're like, I don't know, I guess if you want to. So I would go in the morning and be there all day, walk over in the night, and get McDonald's for, for dinner. And then I do do their IOP. You're a super student, dude. I, well, I had nothing to do, and I was eating it up, you know. And so did you graduate from this I program? I did. I and graduated. Was that your sober date? I graduated. Yeah. So I got I just got 17 years back in February. Actually, oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. So it's been it's been a minute now. That there's other details in there, but the one that I really want to hit on is, is my wife. Okay, so.
3: Wait, I want to have you save that because I want people to come back at the very end to hear about your wife. You're listening to Project Recovery. We've got two stories, one podcast. Stick around. (laughs) Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. We just heard from our guest, Corey. We're going to find out what he's doing in a little later on in the podcast. But now we're going to switch gears because we've got Ryan Decker here, but we just call him Decker. Yep. And uh, Decker, you are a marketer for Wasatch Recovery. Correct. For those who don't know, a marketer, I've had the job. I did it for Pinnacle Recovery. What is a marketer charged with?
0: Uh, pretty much everything. You're in the trenches, everything from building relationships to helping people getting in to giving them hope. I mean, really, it's a, it's a very wide, I would, I don't even know
3: why they call it marketing really. But really, because I know from experience, you are the first point of contact for a lot of people when contemplating recovery. Correct. Yeah. It, it is the
0: first call and building that trust and letting them know there's hope That like, Hey, you can do this. And that's where been there, done that really is crucial. Uh-huh. Right. Cause I'm like, look, you know, cause most times people look at me and they're like, no way. I'm like, for real, let me show you some pictures. Like I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, never want to go back, and if I can do it, you can do it.
3: Do you ever have to Google yourself to look at the mugshot?
0: No, no. Because <laughs> I got that stuff expunged. And I, you I, can do I, that? I, I hope it's off.
3: Oh, because I, I still Google I think myself. you're putting yours on your driver's license. Yeah, yeah I'm put it on my ATM card. ATM card. We should, card, we should make a T-shirt. It. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm in. Don't be a Casey. Yeah. <laughs> so where did the story of uh, Decker begin? Okay, so I'll just kind of –
0: Skip, I'll, I'll start at the beginning and just kind of skip through all the the crap but yeah um typical LDS family in Orem Utah mm-hmm. Utah County kid god's country um and you know <laughs> lot, you know my mom made my you know our family was you know very normal you know and uh one day you know my dad my dad and I were out pulling weeds my mom came down the drive and um she had said, you know, get inside the house. There's a big argument. My dad went up the canyon, took his life. Oh, So that's kind of really where – How old were
1: you at that time?
0: I I was uh, seven. get ready to be eight. Wow. So, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. But, you know, being a guy, you know, push that way down like it didn't happen. Try to pretend like it didn't happen. And, you know, that comes into play later on in life. But, um, yeah, it was not normal. You know, back in the 80s, suicide – wasn't that common i mean it was in the paper you know what i mean now it's so common i mean how messed up is that that the world that's the world we're living in but back then it wasn't that common but um what's kind of crazy is it ran in the family you know my dad was from california where you know you only have one or two kids and so my my bloodline was wiped out with um addiction and suicide um pretty quick in fact when i turned 34 i became the oldest living male on that side of the family to make it to 34
4: Wow.
1: Wow. And that's all due to. And there's a lot of alcoholism, a lot of
0: alcoholism and, and pills and things like that. And I mean, mental we just, health issues. Yeah. And, and, it's, and we didn't
3: have we didn't have what we have now. Like those resources really weren't there. Well, but back then you're right; it was swept under the rug. People didn't talk about it. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. And it was just like, oh yeah, we lost Uncle or we lost, you know, but yeah. But you know, nobody
1: knew why they yeah. passed
0: away. You or, just yeah. you just you just deal with it. And being a guy, like you know, just go to work and just keep doing what you got to do. Figure it out. But uh, yeah, so I mean, my up until that point, my life was you know really good. And my mom, bless her heart, she she remarried um, fairly quickly. I had you know, two other siblings from my dad. And, um, we went about it. I mean, my mom would always tell me every day, you can never try drugs or alcohol like ever. And it was like constant. I'm like, okay, mom. Okay. You're so repetitive. And then, you know, I, I did good, but you know, a lot of the friends that I got real quiet in school, right. I mean, I was dealing with a lot and a lot of the friends that I started, you know, collecting were people from, you know, dysfunctional families, you know, addiction, things like that. And there was no judgment and we were all equals and we were tight. But later on in life, getting into junior high, there's only one, you know, only one way to go. And so they would start doing it. And I was, man, I had white knuckles. Like, no, you know, uh, you know, I'm at church on Sunday. No, that's bad. Mom says, don't, you know, don't do it. And, uh, you know, they talk about gateway drugs. I mean, my gateway drug was the first time I had a Newport cigarette. Right. Because eventually, I mean, what had happened is I had finally made the decision like F it. I'm going to try it. And then that steamrolled into everything. This does this. What does this do? This does that. And, and thank, you know, thank heavens that back then there was just psychedelics and not like all the hard stuff that's out now. or I'd be dead for sure. But, um, you know, Corey, Corey and I have very similar stories. Right. Which I'm sure a lot of people that come in here with opiate addiction, it's fairly similar how how it starts. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I from that point forward, I was pretty much using a substance. I mean, I'm talking. This was this was my. I was going into my ninth grade year um, that summer, and then when I get into high school, I just quit caring about school. And anyway, I was only going to school to kind of party and the social stuff, and you know, and I was you know doing everything under the sun, and it was like an everyday thing, you know, in the door of high school and out the back door up the canyon to get you know trashed. And, and it started out as a social thing, right? Like most people do, you know, it's a cool thing to do, we're different, the bad boys, and, but with that came a whole bunch of drama and jail and, you know,
3: all that crap. Tickets, that, yeah, uh, tickets. trust issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of it. I mean,
0: I mean, and, and and that rebellious stage. I mean, I had long, believe it or not, long, beautiful hair. Yeah, and, and I had the I had the hoops. He's bald out. as the day is you long know, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I had the I had the hoops in. You know, the, from from JMR wherever it was, and the Genko jeans, wide leg the, jeans. You no, know, I could fit a Geo Metro in those. <laughs> but uh, rocking yeah, the Stussy yeah, Hall. Yeah. Man, I tell you what, ladies <laughs> loved it. But uh, yeah, so anyhow, uh, that was it. It was uh, it was. Uh, was struggling to even you know pass school i mean nowadays if i was in school no way i could have done it back then it was old school and and you know so i manipulate girls put me on the roll and slip out the back and get people to do my homework and and finally getting towards uh my junior year i met a girl in seminary for you guys don't know that's a a church class an lds church class and there's this cheerleader there and you know i started throwing out some one-liners and uh, she bit um we ended up getting married out of high school and you know she, what was crazy? She saw something in me that I didn't see myself. Right? I'm like, what the heck? Like, you know, I'm, you, I'm like, you're way out of my league. Like, this girl's gonna wake up and realize that I'm. A piece I think of crap. it was the
3: the hair and oh, the hoops. That's true. Yeah, that's it. I didn't think of that. she, she needed a place to park her geo. I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty easy on the eyes. <laughs>
0: so, but no. So we actually, uh, you know, buddies started getting in deep into stuff, and and um, I actually proposed to. Proposed to her out of high school, and you know we got married, and you know that's where the uh, minimizing and the hiding and the you know now I'm realizing that th- there's a serious problem because I'm not just doing it socially, I'm doing it on my own, like and and I'm not even doing it to have fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost I'm I'm stuck in like this. Let's not get sick, you know. I mean, I functioned, if you will.
3: So at this point, is your is your is your
0: jam? Uh, Pills, yeah. So at the time, it's just just weed and alcohol, okay. Weed and alcohol, and and then cocaine has started coming in, right? And but who can afford that, right? Um, So that was more like a a weekend thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it was really anything and everything, up until the opiates, right? It wasn't, you know, really. I really
3: didn't care what it it was. It sounds
1: like like a lot of a lot of addicts. You had a, a sort of a curiosity about it and a, an obsessiveness about it. Just the way you described that, you're like, well, "What does this do? What does this do? What does this do?" Right. And I think that's sort of a personality trait amongst many addicts, where it's it's like we wish that curious mind would get turned on when you were in physics class, and it doesn't. Yeah. But then. The the after school chemistry class you're running with your buddies out of the back of someone's car, all of a sudden that curious mind comes on and you're like, well, "What does this do? What does right. this do? What does this? What do? If I had this, and or this? and you kind of get obsessive, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you're you become you, it's it's an academic interest. To be honest with you, it's just focused on this uh, the, the the drugs.
0: I call it research now in the industry. I mean, I, you know, it's just research I had to do to, to get yeah. to know about what the, what each thing does, but yeah it was it was uh it was crazy but you know i i minimized it I hit as good as i could to my wife um you know we i i got a, a job you know park sea ski resort and for people that don't know you know in the ski industry it's kind nobody of a does drugs there. <laughs> yeah it's like the worst place ever yeah. i went in with an associates and came out with a phd you know on drugs and alcohol and things and um You know, and I did that through the, through the Olympics and, you know, multiple drunk tank visits, you know, to the beautiful Summit County jail. Been there. Yeah. It's, it's cold. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, (laughs) so that's kind of where it was going. So me and my wife clearly weren't doing well. You know, I, I had a, I had a son in there and then I'd had a daughter and it was just a constant struggle. And so finally, you know, I realized, you know what? Like I got to figure this out. You know, because even though I've, I'm somewhat successful now, I left Park City, took another job, and I was somewhat successful. Bought a house, you know, I had the cars, and you know, things like that. And I had this beautiful family, going to church on Sundays. You know, I had all this, and it was these two different lives I was living, right? But you know, I figured, you know, people started mentioning things like, you know, what you should probably look into that. That's not normal to you know drink by yourself, you know. And I and I'm like. Yeah, whatever. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's legal to drink, right? And so it, I actually uh, – a guy that actually used to own a treatment center was in my ward and he kind of told me about AA. And I'm like, okay. And I started really kind of buying into what he was saying and I did it. And I, and I white-knuckled it. I don't know how I did it, but I did it and I was clean for a couple of years. I had a third child and um, things were good. Like things were working out like awesome. I mean, I was making good money. Hated the job, like making good money, and I loved the people I was working with. And um, you know, it everything was good. And, and I, obviously, as we all know, that never really. <laughs> that it's ended. always good until yeah. it isn't. Yeah, and so and so like like Corey's story. I uh, had had a little injury at work right n- during the height of the oxycontin phase, and that was it you know so all this time i've been look you know trying all these drugs i would really never tried opiates and when i found that it was like ding this is it oh and it's prescribed like i could still like that was it and i was going hard i mean i was winning oscars and doctors you know offices <laughs> you know what i mean i was like i'm dying turn on the faucets and they would you know keep giving me more and more and more but as most people know like i was run out of, of pills within like two weeks. So now I'm having to buy them on the street, but I can't spend this because it was the most lucrative, most expensive drug out there, you know? And I couldn't at one point, like 80 bucks a pill, right? 80 bucks a pill. And, and I didn't want my family. Clearly I was still hiding it from my wife. She knew I was on this prescribed stuff, but she didn't know how bad it was. So I actually started a a separate business to where I was working my guts out 24 seven, just to kind of fuel this addiction, buying them on the streets. And and, you know, things, believe it or not, I functioned on, like that for over a decade on opiates. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had a a lot of people will kind of like nod off, right? I don't know if it's a chemical imbalance in my DNA from my family or from my dad's side or what, but, you know, I, I was always that guy that, you know, everybody started drinking, throw the cap over the shoulder, everybody else has passed out. I'm still drinking or I'm still, you know, I just, something clearly wasn't right. Yeah. You know, and so. Um, you know, I, I did, it. I functioned, I was very successful, did all the things, had all the things, um, beautiful family. Um, but was, eventually like, that's going to come yeah, to a crash. Yeah. And I, and, and what's crazy is finally, uh, same, the same guy that introduced me to AA one morning, I'm sitting in the pharmacy at like eight doesn't open till nine. And he walks <laughs> in, he says, you know, the guys who are sitting here at, uh, you know, before the pharmacy opens on day 30 are usually the guys that need to be in a program like mine. And I'm like, whatever, you know, of mm. course. And, and then I'm like, he's probably got a point. You know what I mean? Like I should probably stop this. This is costing me so much money. I mean, a $400 a day habit, right? Because my tolerance was so high. 400 bucks a day. 400 bucks a day.
1: See, I, I mean, don't, I don't know how. I, that's 2,800
0: I bucks a week. Well, you, yeah. s- you start talking about, you know, a decade, right? Tolerance levels.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. It's, it's, that's why most people go to heroin, right? Because it's cheaper. And, and, but I didn't want to do that. The H words, the devil and the, you know, devil itself. Right. And, you know, this guy says this and I'm like, okay, I'll try to stop. And I, and I'll never forget it. I was sitting on the bed and me and my wife were in an argument and I was, she kind of left with the kids and I was so sick. I mean, if, I mean, opiate sickness is no joke. Death seems like a better option. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I'm like, I'm going to rob a pharmacy. I couldn't get anything. And I was just sweating bullets and I'm like, I'm just going to end this. You know, I'm like, this is, I'm not good to anybody. You know, I was in that poor me, how to get to this point mode. And, and I remember a guy mentioning heroin and I did, I made the call and, you know, and I, and I did it and, you know, it kept me from getting sick. And then I learned very quickly that, um, did the, 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 the people that are associated with that is not the people you want to be associated with. I mean, it is, it's crazy. And you know, here I am, you know, fairly successful. And I'm like, okay, I gotta stop. And so um I actually went and talked to a doctor, somebody mentioned like like Corey's story about Suboxin. And I went and talked to this doctor, he got me on. I'm like, I'm good. And I did it for it's probably about two years. And then one day I just went in there to get my prescription filled, and I apparently I was shaking or something along those lines, and he says, Oh, you got anxiety? And I'm like, I don't know what that word means. I'm like, <laughs> Yes, I do. (laughs) And he prescribed me a a fairly high dose of uh, Xanax. And that's getting into my rock bottom. I took that. I really didn't like it, right? But it made me feel different. But then I got stuck in it. And now I'm snorting everything. And I'm like so sick. Like my light's on, nobody's home. And my whole world, the moment I started that, just started crashing. Everybody knew it. I couldn't hide any longer. Every single person that saw me knew something was wrong. I would quit eating and, you know, just to make it more potent in my body. And I mean, I was sick. Um, And I'm getting a DUI with my prescription in my car on my way to work. Um, I'm like, holy crap. My work's like, dude, go figure your shiz out. Take 30 days. And they were awesome. I love those people I work with. They're willing to do whatever. And and I did. And um, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to stop. Yeah, don't tell a narcissist I can't do something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I didn't know the risks that were attached with just stopping. And so I just stopped. Um, cold turkey. I was coaching my son's baseball team, and one day I said, Hey, let's go to Walmart. I'll buy you guys a video game and I'm gonna go get some stuff for dinner. And next thing I know is I've got an eye socket full of blood, I'm staring up at the ceiling. I got like 40 Walmarties staring down at me. I've got the paramax there, my wife was sitting there which she didn't come with me and i'm like <laughs> man i'm like what the heck just happened well i'd had a grandma seizure um on the floor Whoa. and you know paramedics and and i apparently i was like 14 minutes and oh, so wow some, That's a long, yeah, yeah. so they took me in an ambulance and i still didn't associate it with the benzos the xanax so i just just i didn't i just kept not using them and then you know i'm down sleep with my son because my wife's still pretty upset at me and Boom, another one right in front of my son. Paramex come back over. And then I had the magic three that makes it, you know, where you have to go have a neurologist sign off so you can keep your driver's license. Mm-hmm. I can never become a pilot. All sorts of fun consequences that came with that that uh, deal. But, I mean, nights in jail, you know, from, from benzos. And, like, legitimately, I finally came to a point where, okay, like, physically, I can't do this on my own. Yeah. Like, people say it's sick and tired
3: of being sick and tired. Like
0: I'm like, like, and I thought like I could do anything. Like, you know what I mean? I was a, I was a narcissist. Like, don't tell me I can't do anything. And when I finally, I'm like, this is going to kill me. And on finally the third ER visit. They're like, have you ever take benzos? Cause they were out of my system. So drug test results were showing negative. Right. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, that's what it is. Right. And so I checked myself into detox. Well, my family checked me into detox. Um, there for nine days pre- went in in a wheelchair because you know um, seizures are so violent that your muscles it's almost like this don't work right and, there, and and so I went to detox and I thought it's just a physical stuff I just need not to be dependent on this crap and so I went there for nine days got out no aftercare plan and I just white knuckled it I was staying at my mom's house because things clearly weren't good with with me and my wife um, and you know then I'm drinking because right, drink is not my DOC. So I can drink, I just can't do the all the hard stuff. And one one day I, you know, reached up there and fell a little jingle pill bottle and I'm like, "Poor me. Took one, turned into 10, turned into a fifth of vodka and got myself to, up to the University of Utah to do it again." And that's where um the journey really began. The mental journey and all the treatment centers came and talked to me. And you know, I never heard about any of these, right? I mean, I'm still foggy. And they'd all come and talk to me. And Wasatch Recovery, Mark, the owner of Wasatch, came and talked to me. And I told him, no. Dude, Wasatch, what a dumb name.
4: <laughs> and, you know what
0: I mean? And then all the 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 fancy ones are these young kids called Bougie, right, where all the celebrities go. They came and, you know, a few of those came and talked to me. I'm like, okay, let's do it, right? If this is going to help me get my family back, let's do it. And uh, and I told him yes. And Mark, the owner of Wasatch, came back the next day and called it whatever you want to call it. But I like to – my higher power is like – this, your cat. this is your cat. This is what you need to do. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but
1: But I want to go hang out it. with the celebrities at the yeah, bougie I did, one. I
0: did. I really did. But, <laughs> but I'm like, whatever. And obviously now, you know, where I'm at now, I totally know that that was my higher powers, like, hand and all this. But, uh, yeah, I went to Wasatch to start my journey and I told them I'd do 30 days. And, uh, you know, I just told them what they wanted to hear to get the hell out of heck out of there. Sorry. And uh, um, at 30 days, they said, you're still not ready. And then it turned into, you know, them saying, just give us another day. Turn into 45 days. I'm out of here. You're like, dude, you haven't surrendered. I'm like, what does that word even mean? What's surrender. And finally, I, around 60, I started working. I started talking about my dad and some of the trauma stuff. Because for guys, we stuff that down. Oh, we, yeah. don't, we don't want to think about that. Uh-uh. And I started talking about it. And I actually started doing work. And, and then I started actually doing this for myself and not just to save my family. And that's when I really started absorbing stuff. And a guy that you guys have had on the podcast, Todd Sylvester, one of the greatest humans I've ever met. amazing, Started teaching me about... You know, their belief systems that were broken is BS and that happiness can be a choice. It all seems so stupid. It seems so stupid when he said that, like you saying, so if I believe this putt's going to go in, it's going to go in. He says, no, not like that. But, but really he, I really bought into what he was doing and, and thus far it's worked. And you know, I have eight years in December, but it wasn't an easy journey but, mm. and it's not like once you get out of treatment, like. Everything's hunky dory, right? Like you burnt some bridges. The only way you're gonna rebuild those is by time. How many times have we said we're not gonna do it? They have every right not to trust us. You know what I mean? And so even to this day, you know, people kind of give you the
4: you high? side eye. You high? Yeah, yeah. You're really <laughs> doing good? And, yeah.
0: and and you know what? They deserve that Bring right. Breathe on me. <sighs> yeah, they deserve that right. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But uh and and you know, I ended up, you know, quitting you know, changing careers and realizing how cool is it. These guys get to These guys get paid to help people. And one thing I got is a PhD in drugs and alcohol. And so they wouldn't give me a job for about a year. But I got into the industry. (laughs) One of the detoxes, you know, they want a year clean time, which is the standard. Understandable. And and the detox actually went into the first time, gave me a, a, a chance. And from there, you know, I made my way back home and now I get to help people. And it's, you know, it's this job isn't something you do for the money. It's legitimately the most gratifying job ever, but it's
3: heavy. You know what I mean, it's hard. Oh yeah, I mean, it's you're seeing people on their worst day every day, every day, and helping them out, and that's what I mean. That's what I love about this is showing people that recovery is possible. And with your two stories, I mean, I I, I think it's a great example that recovery is possible and that a wonderful place Wasatch Recovery can be. Before we take a break, I've got to ask: Are you back in the house with your wife? I
0: am. Mm-hmm. Yep, I am. Yep, and I've got my kids are all I've got. A, Yeah, I mean, they're playing baseball, and I've got my kids there. I've got another kid going to college, and that emotional connection, right? A lot of people talk about, yeah, physically I was there for all that stuff, Mm -hmm. but the emotional connection that's there, it's freaking awesome. It's It's
3: beautiful. There's nothing better. Nothing. We're going to find out what cool things Wasatch Recovery is up to. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Uh, we've got our two guests on the mic now. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Mo- Matt Woolley. We've got Corey and Decker here. So, Corey, before we uh, took a break to go over to uh, Decker, you said you wanted to tell us something.
2: Yeah. Well, what was that? I just wanted to update, and it was kind of the same thing that Ryan was just talking about. So he said how he just made it back to his house, mm-hmm. which is good. I was in the same boat. My, my wife actually was a huge part of my, my recovery. She, at the time— held the boundary. I don't again, I this is stuff I've learned now, you know, working in the field and going to treatment. And I don't think she knew it either, but she just had some good boundary and she held it. I mean, she would not talk to me. She and she was like, "Hey, you know, you got to fix yourself. You got to figure this out. You hurt me, you lied, you did all these things." And and I had kind of put everything back together with different family and friends, and work. I actually resigned from my job, got a different job, did a whole bunch of things, kind of had things, you know, going. And she still held strong, you know, and it was funny because to me, I was like, hey, I got to, this is my last piece, you know? And mm-hmm. in, and in the back of my head, I was even thinking, hey, I've got everything else okay, you know? Like, this is good. And and dangerously, you know, starting to figure things out, like, I've got everyone good, right? You know, things are good. It's been, you know, some months, almost a year, you know, things have kind of gone on. And my everything was getting cleaned up with the legal stuff. Things were moving forward. And, and I was, you know, back in school, I was almost done. And, and in the beginning of all this, she actually had served me with divorce papers and it broke my heart, you know, because she was, she she was my person and, and I wouldn't sign them. I'm like, no, you know, and I'm I'm not going to do this. And, Finally, of course, I had to, you know, had to sign them and gave them to her and had them get them notarized. And it was it was awful. Oh, know? yeah, it was. It was it that 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 stung. And even after I did that, I thought she'll talk to me now, but she wouldn't. She just kept holding strong. She would shoot me things like, hey, you know, keep doing what you're doing or just little things here and there. But she was holding holding to her guns. And as time kind of went on and I I finally had moved to that point of, okay, I got to do this for me. You know, she was my last piece that I was doing it for. And I finally said, I got to do this for me. And that's really when I started doing some more internal work and, you know, things, Kind of went on and we started talking a little bit and tried the dating thing you know let's go to dinner and let's do some things and i mean because we had been together for like four years before that this you know like it was we had a relationship and 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 i cared for her she still cared for me she just didn't like the person i was <laughs> i did
3: stupid stuff and can you blame her
2: yeah no man i was a jerk like i mean i remember and when after all this happened she called me and was like hey You know, I just found that there's a credit card that's ran up, and of course, when I say I don't know what that is, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was all these little things that, honestly, I had forgotten that just kept getting, you know, eroded. And so, so anyway, so we kind of started dating, and I was in a good spot; things were good, you know, and 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 we weren't like right back together or anything. But one night, she handed me an envelope, and it was it was those papers she had never actually filed them. Everyone thought she had. Including me, family, everybody, and she had just said she just didn't feel right about it yet. You know, she wanted to make sure she was making the right decision. And every single day to this day, man, I'm I'm thankful she didn't, and I'm I'm grateful for the reason that it got me to that point. You know, because if she if I would have somehow weaseled my way back in or whatever happened, I I, I don't think I'd be sitting here. You know, like I I'd probably be one of you know the clients at Wasatch right now. I I needed that. I needed someone to hold my feet to the fire. My parents couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. You know, I, I needed that person to to
3: do it and turns out she was your person.
2: She is and she still is, man. She, she we have two beautiful kids, you know. We we're we've still married. Every time our anniversary comes along, I always joke minus a year and a half, you know. But. <laughs> <laughs> the asterisk. Yeah, the well, asterisk. What's year. great about that is uh, that's a really really good example
1: of how important uh, holding those boundaries are. Absolutely. If you happen to be the loved one of somebody in active addiction right now, and I think that if she were here, she'd probably talk about how hard that was for her, how heartbreaking it was to not talk to you, to hold that boundary tight, uh, to to get the divorce papers to you, to you know, to have you sign. I'm sure that was really a, an emotional, difficult thing for her. But ha- how absolutely vital! Those boundaries are in helping somebody uh, find their way back to to recovery. So.
2: Yeah, well, and you know, back to when you guys were speaking earlier about opinions, you know, it's it's the same thing. Like I had opinions about myself. You know, she was getting opinions here, all these opinions, and what it boiled down to is is we need to go off of what we believe and what what's what's good for us. Sometimes we don't know what that is, right? I mean, that we learn that. If you if she was here, you would ask her. in In the midst of it, she didn't know what she was doing. You know, she luckily she had some inclination to say, "Hey, I gotta I gotta do this." You know, well, and, she's following her
1: intuition. And, and and let's be honest, the the ladies are better at that than we are. She
2: and she is, and that, that's definitely her talent. You know, and it's funny because if you ask her to this day, she's like, "I didn't know. I just was going off my gut." Yep. And and luckily that is what saved me, and that that's why I'm here now. You know, I mean. I, after all that, you know, I decided I wanted to go back to school and I wanted to work in this field. And I went back and, and became a counselor and I've worked now in this field for like 15 years, which is freaking crazy. And, and I've, you know, been a director of a few different places and ran places. I opened a place with um, some people at new roads treatment center. We opened a place in Florida all the way across the country. I mean, I've done a lot of cool things and I, I, could have never done any of that without where I've been, you know, and it's weird because like even this, like back to the, when you were talking about opinions, you know, I mean, this goes out to a million people, right? I mean, all these people will hear it, all these things. And we've done this a a thousand times. People know who we are, but, but yeah, I mean, people have opinions, you know, and, and they think, oh my gosh, you know, they've done this or they've done that. We've seen some pretty bad things. We've done some pretty bad things.
3: But and, on the flip side of that coin, you've seen some really wonderful things. And, and, that, and that's what I was going and to say. And that's what keeps
2: us going. Right. And, and the opinions of, of other people, you know, it, it, it's just opinions, you know. I mean, I'll be honest with you, man. When when you went through your stuff, I didn't know who you were, right? And I saw the comments online and I saw this. And you don't even know this, but I reached out. I sent DMs to you, to KSL. I'm like, we got to help this guy. Because oh. because I, I I didn't know you, but I knew the situation, you know, and 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 one being there, and then two knowing the situation. I'm like, we gotta help this guy. Someone's gotta reach out to this dude. You know, and 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 we do that all the time. It, it's crazy. The people that we've kind of reached out to and helped, and and it was it hit me when you're talking about opinions because yeah. I I had an opinion. All these people
3: have these opinions, but. I know the situation. I didn't know you. I just needed to help you. So my therapist, uh, you know, we sat down and we pulled up the Facebook page with my mugshot and he wanted me to read all the comments. I've said about this on the podcast before and I was like, I don't want (laughs) to. And he goes, why? And I go, because they are going to just roast me and they're going to beat me up. And he said, Hey, those are opinions. He goes, but you might be surprised. And I sat down, and we did a whole session of us just reading comments and kind of dissecting them. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, um, people were really, really nice and supportive, saying, "I hope he gets the help he needs." And I hope. This... And there was a handful, fifteen percent, that were like, "This guy sucks." Always, you know, mm-hmm. couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which yeah. there's going to be haters out there, and that's okay. But what I loved about it was, and what I learned is that most people do want want you to get help. And they want to be there. And I think, you know, you all three of us, before we found out about recovery, didn't know recovery was the thing. Mm. And we were all seasoned veteran partiers. You know what I mean? And you never knew that recovery was possible. So that's what I want to know. What makes Wasatch Recovery different? What are you guys doing there that seems to be working?
2: Wasatch is a special place. You
3: know, Ryan Ryan
2: can attest to it. He's been through there. I've worked at several different places. And th- there is a—I always joke about it, a kind of a mystique or a spirit about Wasatch, and and we even have like a little saying up there called the Wasatch Way. You know what what we do there, and and I'll tell you, it's a it's a tough program. You know, it's it's not easy. I mean, you're not just going there and getting massages and hanging out. It, it it's it's pretty intense. We our our heaviest focus is on processing. You know, people people get there and they're like. Okay, do I get my A book and my you know my worksheets and this and that? What time's the jam and dinner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just not the way we roll. I mean, there's a girl there right now that I was talking to her and her mom. She's been there about a week or so, and she was telling her mom, you know, what they do. And I'm kind of just sitting back as she's telling mom, and in my head, I'm thinking, mom probably thinks this is pretty rough because she's like, yeah, we have group in the morning for three hours, and then we do this, and then we have group, and 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 it's pretty intense. And and when we walk into groups. We, we sometimes go into the groups without a topic, you know, we're not going in there like, okay, Hey guys, we're going to talk about addiction in the brain today. It might lead to that, but we just sit down in a circle and say, Hey, what's going on in the house? And, you know, we let someone bring something up and and it just turns into a three hour process group. And our, our therapists are incredible. I mean, we have all masters level therapists that, that lead all the groups they are they all have their own little niches of, of what they do. But it's very it's pretty intense. I mean he knows. I mean there there was times where I'd walk past the door when he was in treatment and I'm like is this guy gonna kill somebody? Because he's flipping out and just <laughs> But but it's it, and it's it's in a
3: controlled environment. I, mean, I don't no, want you I to think it. that it's no, like but there is some stuff that has to yeah. get loud and have to process
1: get, groups are a good process group is like the detox, yeah. but it's for your your emotions and for your traumas in life. And if you think about how tough it is going to detox for a week and, and all of that junk is getting out of your body, it's the same thing. A good yeah. process group should be exhausting when you're done. And uh, I'm glad to hear you guys make
3: that a priority there. So, Decker, you went through the program. What makes Wasatch different?
0: Well, just talk about what Corey was talking about. Like... Yeah, I do remember that time and, and like the process is that's hard. Like yeah. it, and, and especially if you're just trying to fake it. Like it's pretty hard to hear some of the stuff. And and finally kind of a light bulb for me is that my therapist says, You gotta admit you love drugs more than your kids. And I remember processing is I'm gonna hit this guy as hard as I can. <laughs> I'll probably do a night in jail, I'll get bailed out, probably worth it. Yeah. And I and then I you know, like like a like an idiot, I just stormed out of the group. And then I thought about it, I'm like how crazy is that that something in my life came before what I love most? And that was that was tough and it but it was also a turning point. Somebody had to say it. When it hearing it come out of somebody else's mouth is tough to hear. And so what Corey means by tough is it, it is tough. We don't we don't coddle. This ain't a bed and breakfast. Right? We've only got you know, insurance is limited on what they're willing to help with, right? time frame wise. And so we get after it. And it's uncomfortable, but Necessary, yeah. I mean, getting uncomfortable, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And then you start to grow, and it is crazy. I went in a week, a week before Christmas, leaving three kids behind. Never had a roommate in my life, right? And I was like, I'm willing to do whatever, you know, to try to get this family back. But in reality, the only way I could could have done it is if it is what it is. It was like a family away from my family, right? That homesick, that blackout period where you can't talk to anybody for, you know, weeks on end or whatever it was back then. But it was tough. But you know what? They they seriously loved me until I could love myself, you know, which a lot of people say, but it, it was true, right? I was this broken person at my all-time lowest. You know, I mean, I got to a point I had to go to rehab, right? I only thought that was a, on TV. <laughs> but it really is. there. And, and there is a certain feeling there that you're in the safest place you're ever going to be You've got a whole bunch of people whose lives depend on this working, and when you get in a safe place like that, it makes it easier to surrender, right? And surrender was a tough one for me. I didn't want to. I don't want to go there. Like, why do they need to know about that? It's irrelevant. That it doesn't matter. In reality, it did. I stepped that down for decades and decades, and it, you know it hurt. You know what I mean? It, it took me on this path of destruction, and when I finally talked about it. I could start working through it and processing a lot of things about this process group is even when other people are processing stuff, you're like thinking, oh, oh, yeah, I did that. Yeah. Check, check, check. So you don't even necessarily have to be the one processing. Oh, yeah. Right. But you're like constantly learning. And but the end game at Wasatch is happiness. Right. We don't talk about the drugs and alcohol like that's besides the point. Let's figure out why we did it in the first place. Let's, let's work on the trauma stuff. But the end game is 100 percent happiness. And for me, you know, how I did it is, you know, I did 90 days in treatment. Afterwards, I lived in Utah County, so I wasn't going to drive up here. And I did a horrible place in, in Utah County that's no longer there. Um, but it had, it gave me accountability, right? Drug mm-hmm. tests, right? A place I could keep, still go dump out all the stuff on how crappy my day was. And, hey, I thought I'd go to treatment, everything would be hunky-dory. And, you know, which it wasn't. But it was awesome because I play Silver softball on Friday nights. What else was I doing on a Friday night? I would play in a sober golf league. It's called good time golf. The greatest thing ever. Oh, I know about it. Yeah. It's and and seriously. And I started to realize that like all these friends and people that weren't beneficial for me being the best version of myself had to go. And it's hard because some of those are lifelong friends. But what I did gain is a whole group of like amazing friends that, that did just that and made me a better person. And it ended up being the Wasatch staff, and and we would do all these things together. I'm like, holy crap, these guys are having fun golfing without drinking.
3: I didn't know it was a thing.
0: Yeah, wait, we can go skiing and not get trashed.
3: That's a thing too.
0: Yeah, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like Vegas? Are you kidding me? No cocktails, just
3: Red Bulls. I'm still not <laughs> sure about the sober softball, but yeah.
0: <laughs> but but seriously, so so Mark the and and the Jeff the owners at Wasatch have done a really good job of building programs to kind of. Um, build a community of support which is awesome i mean it's it's freaking awesome
3: well i love that you guys both stopped by today to share your story uh of recovery and how wonderful it can be and that it is possible uh it's uh cory and uh ryan decker we just call him decker Oh, Decker. Okay. Yeah. I was I was testing you to see if you were in on this.
1: <laughs> if I was in, well, I think of him sort of like a prince yeah. or a Madonna, just like the one name, you know? I Decker. I Decker. Did Decker. Too. I yeah, yeah. yeah. So your thoughts on today? Well what I love about I mean I mean, thank you both obviously for sharing your stories. Um I, I really like the fact that you're just average guys who went on to have big addictions because I want everybody to hear that. It, it's not a respecter of persons. Anybody can become addicted no matter how you grow up. Um, there's a lot of different things in your stories I could comment on. All I want to comment on is I love the fact that Wasatch is a place like many other. I wouldn't say many other. I shouldn't say that. The better recovery centers today are places that create a community. And it's a place people want to go back to. And it's a place where they feel like I can be my best self in and around these people. And so it kind of goes back to maybe what your dad or your grandma told you. It's like, you know, who you hang around with, that's going to have an influence on who you become. And that's not just for when you're 10 years old. that That's at any age. And so I, I love the fact that people can go to Wasatch. They can get the real treatment that they need. And then they can feel like for the rest of their lives, they have a community of people that help elevate them uh, as you elevate other people. And I think both of you mentioned in your own way, you love that op- opportunity to to help others. And, and that's what it's all about.
3: I forget which rich dude it is, but he says, Hey, you want me to show me how successful you're going to be in life? Show me your friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think, uh, the opposite of addiction is what? Uh, connection, <laughs> connection. <laughs> connection, Dr. Matt, come on, My man. Connections are firing slow. We should be finishing each other's Sandwiches. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but thank you for stopping by uh, Project Recovery. If people want more information about Wasatch Re- Re- Recovery, where do they go, guys?
0: You can go online at wasatchrecovery.com and it's got all the information on there and my phone number. All right. Which phone number? 801 318 4240.
1: And just ask for him.
3: Yep. Decker.
1: Decker. Just say just one word. Decker. Yeah.
3: Maybe they could team up with that one guy, one call, that's all. Yeah. Decker.
1: Decker. <laughs> One-decker, that's, <laughs> that's all. That's
3: all That's all, all you, you need. need. Huh. You don't need two-deckers
1: because he's got a lot of energy. I don't think we can handle uh, two-deckers. Yeah. Just one-decker for me. Yeah. Right, yeah.
3: <laughs> but that double-decker does have a nice screen to it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think, okay, let's go back to the marketing table. Yeah. we, yeah. we got
1: to talk to Wasatch. Hey, anyway,
3: thank one. you for stopping by and listening to the podcast today. Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. We love you and we mean it.
0: KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.
2: It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce.